Galaxy Lights, Coachella, Lightning Bolt Necklaces. 2023 was the year of Scandaval. On March 3rd, one cheating scandal launched a reality TV investigation that generated hundreds of conspiracy theories, thousands of podcast episodes, and millions of dollars in revenue. I'm Jody Walker, host of An American Scandaval. One retrospective story told in three salacious parts. Listen December 26th on the Ringer Reality Feed. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line with the footprint file under his arm, it's Andy Greenwald. Never has doc review seemed so essential. Not, not since the glory days of Better Call Saul. You know, I know. It, really, what else was this season of Slow Horses but an ode to old media? You know, when you printed stuff out, <laughs> you photocopied it. You went to Kinko's, yeah. I love that. It's, 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 it's tactile, you know? Andy, today we have a very special guest, Will Smith, who is essentially the creator, the showrunner, the writer of Slow Horses, one of our favorite shows over the last couple of years, certainly one of our favorite seasons of TV this year. Uh, it was in both of our top fives. Will came on to talk to us about all of season three, so this is a spoilery, although I don't think we actually got too deep into spoilers uh, a spoilery conversation with him and a little bit about the future of the show, which I thought we would start here because we've talked a lot about, you know, how reliably satisfying and rewarding this series is and also how it seems to know exactly what it is, both in terms of its comic elements, its action elements, its thriller elements. For anybody who doesn't know, it's usually a six-episode season based on one book in a series of books by Mick Herron. Uh, it's about... Slow Horses, the Slough House of, of MI5, which is where loser spies go to be kind of sunsetted. And this, this office is run by Jackson Lamb, who is this really disgusting individual played by Gary Oldman. And it's got this great cast of characters. It's six episodes a season, like I mentioned, and just concluded its third series. Andy, the third season ended a little bit differently tonally than the last couple have where it's basically a gunfight for about an hour but most of the last two episodes are, are a gunfight what did you think of the shift in tone well i i think i don't know I, we didn't talk too much about it i feel like we're 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 pretty much in alignment i loved the penultimate episode that we didn't talk specifically about on the pod yet um episode uh 305 which is sort of that sets up the gunfight and does have some violence in it and and some weaponry and then I did not expect the finale to be basically um, like assault on precinct, whatever the number of yeah. assault on room 12B, I guess would be the case in the show. But look, I, 
at every moment where I was like, I'm not sure if Slow Horses is really respecting concussion protocols to the same degree the NFL is, because Rivers really had a day and should probably sit the next couple of plays you out. You should watch some more AFC North games. <laughs> I think yeah, okay, that's fair. Slow Horses I, takes, takes good care of their players. I, I was willing to go along with it and found myself finding it really gripping and really enjoyable because this was the Slow Horses version of this type of show. And the kind of amazing thing about this series that I'm really learning to appreciate even three years in and hopefully with many more years to come is just its reliability and its dependability. Not just that it hopefully will have a new book to adapt and have a new series on every fall for us, but the fact that there is a lot of road past this gives me the confidence in the creators and in the whole project that next season won't have necessarily massive machine gun fight at the end of it. It will have a different thing. And that's the the sort of the beauty of the construction of the show is that each season they can try a different type of storytelling or almost a different type of movie. So there were a couple moments where I was like, I didn't know handguns just had unlimited bullets like Perfect Dark on the Nintendo 64. But at the same time, that's not what I'm watching the show for. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that... Um... I ultimately like really loved the way the season ended just because of the notes between Tierney and Taverner and mm-hmm. Taverner and, and Jackson and Standish and Jackson and River and his and his grandfather David. Like I thought the duos and the the emotional beats really sold all the action. And the action was kind of fun. You know what I mean? Like I, I really enjoy a good shoot 'em up as much as the next guy. So I thought that they did it really well and you know, it does seem like Chieftain is going to have to do some really intense recruiting um, now, now that yeah, they're... well, you know, we're close to full empo- employment post-COVID, you know? I feel like they'll be able to fill those spots. <laughs> you think that they should be re- going to America for, for new Chieftain employees? I, I, I mean, I think, I think they should probably go far away from any coverage of their most recent exploit. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, if you start a new job and you just get the same email as the person who had the job before you and all the emails are just like, we're so sorry, we loved you so much or like obituaries about the person, like that would be a real bummer. So I yeah, do think Chieftain might need to do a hard rebrand. As far as where the series goes, I was wondering whether or not you felt the, and, and you know, Will talks a little bit about this. Mick Heron's books, while I wouldn't go as far to call them George R. Martin uh, levels of um Merciless. I don't want to like give anything away, so I'll just say he can be disposable with his characters. Like I think when he finds a moment that he thinks a character, the exit makes sense for the story, I, I think he will take that. Now, there's also that kind of like where the show exists is right in that justified X Files kind of long running series, and there's going to be things that you want out of this show that they're not going to take from you for a while. And I was curious whether or not you felt, do you ever feel that itch where you're like, I want something dramatic to happen that changes everything versus I need these people to be in Slough House together, this particular group. It's got to be Standish assisting Jackson with River kind of bucking against it, but still staying. No, I mean, I think it's funny that you mentioned George R. R. Martin because I, I was thinking as we were sitting down to do this podcast that like, Slow horror, it, it does it's not a, a one-to-one. It's not a clear, um, it's not like one led to the other, but this is the promise of Game of Thrones on television again mm-hmm. for me. You know, it is it's this rich world with so much runway for the creators to then build on. And the kind of moves that we've already seen in the show, the kind of volatility of people coming and going, of of um of 
Ingrid being there, being gone, becoming a villain um, of Spider in his arc in this season, what happened with Min, the arrival of um, of characters like Shirley. Like these are moves made with supreme confidence. Yeah. These are these are not the moves that even experienced or like incredibly gifted showrunners make in this way because you just don't know what's promised. They're operating with such a stacked deck here. And I love that feeling. It is not something we're used to really outside of those first few seasons of Game of Thrones. We realized, wow, this is going to move at a different pace. It's going to it's going to make us uncomfortable or destabilize us in ways that we're not used to because the natural tendency of TV is to write towards what's working and do it for as long as possible. So I, I think it's a it's an interesting comparison, but a good one. I also think that as and we talk about this with Will in our interview, but like Gary Oldman wants to do this show forever. So mm-hmm. we do have this is a heliocentric offense, let's say, and the sun, sure is not, is. <laughs> the sun is not burning out any time. And so whatever other satellites you've got are, are worth, you know, that's pretty great. It's also worth noting that episode to episode, sometimes it's like and Jonathan Price for the episodes that he's in. But I believe the only full-time recurring cast members of Slow Horses are uh, Gary Oldman, Jack Loudon, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Yes, and Kristen Scott Thomas uh, is a really good example of being able to have someone of really supreme ability and just say, hey, like, I, I just am guessing here, but could you do a week on the show this season? Because mm-hmm. Diana is in an office languidly drinking scotch and commenting on events for the entire season. Yeah, That's she gets just one genius walk stuff. At the end. Yeah, and then does one one or two walks. Like, having Sophia Canada to be, be able to like have this turn that she does in this season is is just fantastic you know like the the quality of the bench and that bench's belief in their coach i guess is is really what i think makes this show pretty special yeah i agree i i'm glad you mentioned sophie okaneto who i i didn't know that was her until the third episode of this season I, and I watch the credits every time. Like, I don't know. We've never discussed Slow Horses as a can't skip the credits show because of Mick Jagger's theme song is absolutely fantastic. But the fact that that's an actress who I've seen for 20 years in a, I assume, wig that I'm still quite surprised by, just taking such a different tone. Like, I think that me praising her is actually a way to to answer your larger question, which is, I think actors see this as an opportunity you know, which is such a great position for a show to be in. Like Sophie Dearest, who plays, um, who played, who played, <laughs> let's, Sean, let's put yeah. some respect on his name, played Sean Donovan this season. Like when you can come to an actor like that, who's a rising actor in England and be like, come play with us and do this sort of thing for this finite amount of time, they're going to do it, right? I, it, it seems like an easy yes. Um, and then you get to have, I, I think it's better to frame it the other way, which is like, why wouldn't Kristen Scott Thomas want to sit in a room and yeah. sip scotch with a great scene partner, knowing that they're going to come to her in three to six months and be like, guess what you got to do this year? And maybe it'll be completely different. Right. Do you mind that this show is really just about this show? And I, and I mean that by the way in which some spy fiction, some espionage fiction, some of these shows are about, you know, man's unknowability to man about the the sort of moral complications of nation states working on behalf of others. And there's all the kind of tropes that come up with spy fiction. And then you've got Slow Horses, which is essentially about people trying to decide like whether or not this is where they've arrived in their life and whether this is the last station that the train goes to and, and, and being at Slough House and whether or not the connection that they've made with the people around them is is 
should stop their ambition and stop their sort of moving forward with their lives. But I don't really know if I would turn around and say like, yeah, Slow Horses is about England navigating a post-Brexit West or anything like that. What do, what do you think? I think that the way that McHaren in the books and the way Will Smith in the show have stacked priorities is really fantastic and really, really strong. I think that the show has such a unique positioning in that, let me put it this way. When you watch, I'm going to, I'm going to use you statements, you know, which is the opposite of what I was taught in my liberal arts college. But you, Chris, when you watch a Taylor Sheridan show and you are rooting for the special ops or the lioness. Now I know that those shows are more morally gray area than, um, the commercials would have you believe. I like that you think the special ops and the lioness are two separate things, but keep going. (laughs) Well, I'm saying, well, first I meant special ops as the larger genre of shows that you like, including Uh like the, what was the SAS show that the British one? Rogue Heroes. Yeah, Yeah. Rogue Heroes. So that's what I meant. The larger Rogue Heroes expanded universe of types of shows. I only like shows that have something, something, colon, something. Yeah, you like shows with colons in the middle. It's fine. We all have our things. Um, There is a kind of moral complicity in these shows that is interesting, right? But you're rooting for an institution one way or another, or you're at least not rooting for, but you are aligned with, your point of view is the institution. The thing about Slow Horses that's so smart is that they're MI5, but they're rejects from MI5. And so you can have a character like Catherine Standish in the season be like, I'm betwixt and between. I'm like, I love what I think of it, but I'm also apart from it. And so it can comment on it without being of it or responsible for it. And you can sort of dance in and out that way. And ultimately, I also think that this show is, as most good shows are, the way you said it, they're about themselves. It's about the characters. It's a workplace dramedy in a lot of ways. It's about the people that we've come to meet along the way rather than some larger political project. So it can like, you know, it can kind of skitch along the headlines. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have a who will take over Waystar Royco engine or who will sit on the Iron Throne engine or who will live or who dies in White Lotus engine. But I think that it has... It's sort of a muscular version of some of the stuff that Will has worked on in the past with Armando Iannucci, which he he references quite a few times in the interview people are about to hear. And I thought it was really fascinating. And I know his pedigree, but in some ways I realize like that's what I'm reacting to or that's maybe what I'm responding to is the the veepy thick of it of-ness mm-hmm. of, of this show. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fun to see spies, which is a type of character that you and I love more than most, be fallible and not fallible in the, you know, well, he's a genius, but he loves to drink, you know, like not, not just within the realm of, uh, like Lacare cranks, but like these, these guys are fuck ups. And, you know, one of the best visual gags this season is, um, Marcus's character, you know, has his, is driving around with the, with the kid seat in the back with the, on top of a bunch of machine guns. Right. And then that scene when he and Shirley go to turn in their badges, they literally, it's like they're, they're quitting at Arby's. They're like, well, what are we going to do with our lives now? Now that this job is over, I kind of, I really, I really enjoy that. I think it's just a version of the story that we haven't seen before. Yeah, me too. So I guess, why don't we get into our interview with Will? Can I just add, before we get into it, Chris, you, how many of these books have you read? Uh, I am on, I've read five of them. Is it fair to say, and we sort of asked, I, and you'll hear in the interview, we, I asked Will this and he sort of alluded to some things, but he didn't spoil anything at all in the future of the series. Is is my original comment kind of fair to say that like, this is the action movie season of Slow Horses and that there are other types of stories to come? Or do you think yeah, that this season- Yeah, I mean, season- I, I think within within the context of probably season two had more action than 
you know, it's got more action than Succession ever had with the plane flying towards London and, you know, people, there's usually a gun in this mm-hmm. in the series, but this definitely had the most private military, you know, the dogs, the slow horses all converging on the same space. There's a huge gunfight. So that that definitely was a little bit more of an action set piece. But I, the next season is a is uh I think a slightly more, you know, quiet affair. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I think also, I wonder what our, our listenership feels or what the fans of the show feel. Like, all the way back to the original question that you asked me when we, when we signed on here was like, if this was a different show, I think I would have had a little skepticism or worry that the show had not lost its way, but fundamentally changed. Because most shows, again, don't have that grounding to return to. Or that, or that the change that we're talking about is baked into its DNA. But because I trust the show so much, it's so dependable in so many ways, and talking to Will only made me feel that more so. Like, this is fun. This is yeah. a fun season. It's a fun watch, but I do think it's, I think it's honest about what the characters are doing and the world in which the characters live and that they can fuck up, you know? Um, and I, I thought that was pretty interesting about the third season where pretty much everybody who was involved in getting that file out of Istanbul dies. Um, yeah. and that is a consequence of, of the way in which Dame Ingrid and Diana sort of manage their teams. <laughs> it's not a, not a management style I aspire to, but the, it is, it can be cruel, you know, even though it's funny. Um, and I think that that's that mix that really, really is, is it's specific spice mixture. We should get into our interview with, with Will Smith, who to be clear is the British Will Smith, not yes. the Los Angeles Dodger or, um, the Fresh Prince, but, uh, a Will Smith that we would love to talk to again. Thanks to Kai McMullen for producing us. And this is the last show of the calendar year. Uh, We're recording this a little bit early, but it'll go up right after the Slow Horses finale. Hope everybody has a wonderful new year and we will be with you in 2024 uh, with some just uh, outstanding content. And I don't even know what it's going to be, but I I like to commit myself. It's like a New Year's resolution. Make a better pod. Happy New Year, Bransky's. Let's, Let's talk to Will Smith about Slow Horses. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Thank you so much for joining The Watch. Andy and I have been such huge fans of this series, but this season in particular is oh, one of uh, one of the best things on television right now. And I, oh, I thought we could okay. start by talking about this specific project and something that Andy and I have been sort of fascinated by, which is, and I'm sure you're going to laugh at this, the well-oiled machine that seems to be Slow Horses, where <laughs> we've gotten three seasons in 18 months. You have this roadmap with the McHeron novels mm-hmm. where you're adapting a season per book. How do you make slow horses? And feel free to be as behind the scenes and, and inside baseball as you want, because I think Andy and I and, yeah. and all, all our listeners are fascinated. Well, it's I mean it, it's a pretty uh, it's well oiled, but it's 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 a kind of relentless machine. And at any one point, there's always there's always three of them going on at once. So there's always like one in the edit, one being prepped or shot, and one being written. So it's so. Uh, 
it points my head is like <laughs> in, a, in a great way but yeah so it's um yeah we shoot two back to back so it takes it's it's like a year shoot pretty much uh by the time we finished it um or, or most of a year and yeah and during that time we'll also edit and write another one so it's just getting it getting it ready so it's sort of six months old and then back on is that why because i noticed in the season uh, this you have the trailer which we love so much the trailer for the next season comes up at the end of the yeah. season and in case just to be clear yeah. we're we're going to be airing this after the season three finale has aired so we can okay, spoil cool. fr- freely oh, great. We can and spoil I, everything, I, yeah. I i wondered if one of the reasons why every character has a different haircut is to keep so you can keep track of which season you're looking at whether you're <laughs> looking at dailies or when you're in the edit or whatever it, it definitely helps but it's also a nightmare if there are any pickups because it's like ah, it's like you're, <laughs> right. you don't look like that now but i mean actually the, the makeup and and like and the clothes and, and all praise to our amazing hair and makeup designer, Lucy Civic and Guy Speranza, our, our, uh, our costume uh, designer. They really think about, you know, what the, and the actors as well, think about what the character's been through in the last series and how that will have moved on, you know. So Louisa, it, it's sort of, she's, you know, in this series, she's got the highlights. She's trying to be up when she's down. And this, you know, this, it, it, it really, you know, it really is to do with the acting of the characters that as much as anything is, is it, and I think the actors really like that, that they could kind of track where the characters are going from season to season and they're kind of, you know, they're sort of wearing the scars of what's gone before. So, yeah, we always try and, you know, fresh, I mean, it, it's also because it, great, it looks different, so it feels like you're moving on, but, it, you know, hopefully the, the freshening up comes from the story and the characters. Before we move too uh, too much into the specifics of season three and looking ahead on the show, I wanted to just tag on to Chris's original question, which is now it does seem like, as you said, it's a it's a machine. You've got three seasons going at once in your head, potentially even future seasons being plotted. When did that become the project? What I mean to say is you have these books. You're clearly a fan of them. Mm-hmm. There were already a, a number of them published, and you came into Apple. You put the project together. How quickly did it go from, let's see if we can pull off six episodes of this, to someone saying, you know what? We've got a great thing here. Let's keep it rolling. Let's see if we can do six yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it was it was quite a long process, and, you know, in, in sort of development kind of always is. But originally it was Gail Mutrux in America found the books there where because they kind of they didn't sell that well over here but they sort of started to sort of get a little cult following in america so it was mixed american publisher that kind of kept it going it kind of got dropped over here and then it kept going in america and then thankfully the uk caught up and everyone realized you know what what brilliant books they are what brilliant writer mick is and so gail had it but she knew that kind of a uk production company had to be involved it's got a very kind of british sensibility so she went to seesaw and jamie lawrenson who was a seesaw uh, had met up with me because I'd given him a, a spec script he really liked. And I think it was because of my background in comedy and specifically, I think, working for Amadou Yonucci on Thick of It and V, because the sort of shorthand pitch for Slow Horses could, it's, it's kind of like Tinker Tailor meets the Thick of It. So it's, it, it's, it's got that kind of humor within it. Uh, in its in its DNA. No wonder I like uh, it so much. Mm. Oh, really? yeah. yeah, but it is. That's why I like that's I mean, that's why I responded to it. Like, it, it had everything that I love. It, it's because I, I love Le Carre, Mick. Loves Le Carre, and we, we're, we're real fanboys with that. We went to see Le Carre do a reading together. They're like total fanboys. So it had Le Carre, it had a great action opening sequence that I thought was just absolutely brilliant. And, and then it had a twist on that action sequence that I thought was genius. And then you go into Slough House, and, it, and I kind of feel I've never seen anywhere like this in, a, in spy fiction. Then you meet Jackson Lamb, and I kind of thought I've never met 
a character like that in, in any kind of fiction and then all the other characters who felt really real and you know with complicated home lives and kind of more everyday issues than you kind of get in the spy genre and you know they're all this collection of vulnerable people and and the, the really smart thing i think mick did with it as well is by the very nature of Slow House, which is if you're in there, it's because you've you've messed up. Straight away, everyone has a backstory. Everyone has a flaw that you, you kind of want to know about and, and that you can mine. Plus, the books are really, really funny. Uh, but they're not spoofs. They're they're in the thriller section of the bookshop. They're not comedy books. They're, they're thrillers. But the characters have a license to be funny because you know, Jackson Lamb is a funny, acerbic, you know, witty character. He, he uses his humour as a tool. It's, it's, it's character-based. So... It was all that mix of stuff just made my head kind of go, you know, wow, this is, you know, Mick has kind of reinvigorated the spy genre on the page. Let's try and do it on the screen. And then it was Apple, you know, going, yes, this this seems great. And then it was Gary Oldman <laughs> going, I'd like to do this. That was then like, oh, that just everyone goes, oh, all right, it is a, it's a thing then. <laughs> and then you could get, you know, unlocks a lot of other cast getting someone like Gary. And it, it just makes it just makes it a prestige project and and then it was you know let's if we're going to do it let's do it and so that, i that, wonder whether or not there are some actors who do slow horses thinking this is my finally my chance to work with gary oldman and then they get there and it's jackson lamb <laughs> <laughs> abusing them yeah <laughs> but they do i mean he is you know uh, I, I would say this to his face you know, he's he's a revered figure like so of course everyone wants to work with yeah him. But they, i mean i just feel we're so lucky because we have so many revered figures in our cast. Jonathan Price is, you know, Gary, you know, is <laughs> looks up to Jonathan. It's like he he used to watch Jonathan on stage where he was when he was starting out. And so I, I kind of think I, I love the fact that the, we've got the kind of three generations of acting royalty in my head, the, the kind of Jonathan and Gary and uh, and Jack Loudon mirroring the kind of three generations of espionage royalty and kind of David Cartwright, Jackson Lamb, and River Cartwright. And then you've got Chris Scott Thomas. Saskia Reeves got Sophie Okonado in this and it's just these people are just incredible so yeah <laughs> sorry I'm just gushing about the cast oh, no, they okay. are amazing and I just feel so lucky to work with them. you mentioned uh Will the mm. your love of Le Carre and your work with Iannucci I, I wondered specifically how then you found the line between those two great masters in this project because so horses like Veep it portrays a serious world um, in a way that at times is deeply unserious or shows that that world itself is uh, or can be unserious. But the show also, this show also has, especially this season, giant machine gun fights. And I would yes. venture to say that your um, bullet exit wound budget was quite robust in season three. So how did you find that balance in, in, in creating the tone of <laughs> the series? It's quite a kill count. It's, it's quite, it was quite surprising. Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of, you know, a, a strange tone in some ways, but on, in others, I, I don't personally find it that unfamiliar. And I, I was never that worried about the tone being an issue, partly because Mick carries it off so brilliantly on the page. So I was like, well, Mick, Mick's done it, so we can do it. And then you know, there's, a, there's a whole, you know, bunch of films that were massively influential on me where I, where I feel they're dramas and I absolutely believe every moment and every character in them, but they make me, every line is, a brilliant joke, but just they make me laugh out loud. You know, with Nell and I is a massive film for me. Alexander Payne, um, particularly uh, Sideways, but Stillman's Barcelona. You know, these, these are terrific film. These terrific comedy films, but you, you believe everything that's happening. And then also those great American dramas that again were a massive influence on me. If you look at like 
you know, Sopranos, Wire, Deadwood, The Shield. They have funny moments within them. They're not, they are, I mean, the Sopranos could really go anywhere. I mean, if you, if you look at the scenes with Tony and his mother in, in series one there, I mean, that, that could read like sitcom and James Gandolfini was one of the greatest actors of all time. He's a brilliant comedian and you watch him in those scenes with, with his mother and it's, they're really funny. So, you know, shows could do this. You can kind of bend the tone and then as well, of course, Armando had done that in the thick of it and in Veep where it's, it's a comedy, but it feels real. And I really took with me um, something he said to me when we were doing, I think it was Veep, which is he, he cut a line uh, in the edit and he he was just like, I just thought that actually in that moment, that character wouldn't be trying to be funny because something mm. serious is going on. So, you know, it, it would have felt gratuitous. And that's what I really wanted to stick to on on this, which is that as, as long as the line feels dramatically earned and that the character would say that thing at that moment, then you can be funny. And like I say, like Lamb uses kind of humor as a as a kind of weapon at points to throw people off. So it's so he's kind of got the license to do that. So as long as long as it feels true and it doesn't feel like you're doing a joke and you're shoehorning something in, you can kind of go anywhere with it. And then in regards with the action, that was a specific challenge to this series in that we knew we were kind of up in the action and that, you know, as in the book, the kind of the back end of it is like a full-on, you know, um gunfight in a bond. A Bond villain base, basically. But within that, we didn't want it to just go into, feel like it was in, going into kind of another show. You wanted it to feel like you still had the humour and the character within the action. So they're still reacting like slow horses. That You know, the guns aren't working properly. They're missing things. They're kind of, the, the you know, it's too loud for them. Whatever the thing is, it was to sort of try and find their personalities and be true to that within all the action. I had a question about the sort of the project as a whole and adapting Mm. a long running series like this. It's sort of a two part question. One is how do you find yourself balancing planting seeds for future seasons, future stories you're going to tell and like maybe hinting that, you know, Mm -hmm. River's grandfather isn't doing the best right now and keep an eye on that versus, you know, staying in the moment with the story that you're telling and maybe allowing yourself a little bit of wiggle room narratively, creatively to, to, to change some things. And then my follow-up, which I'll just ask now, is also, do you keep the actors from reading ahead in the series so that they are kind of in the present tense with their characters when you're shooting a season? That's a great question. And uh, with regards to kind of how we kind of look at going forward, because we've got the books, we know what's coming up. So we knew, and it's a, it's a spoiler if you haven't read the books for the, for season four, but um, if you had read the books, it's, you know, obviously, it, and if you've seen all of season three, River's grandfather is not doing so well. He's, he's started to kind of lose his grip on things. Uh, he started to succumb to dementia. And so, yeah, that was absolutely something we we thought we have to actually start at, prefigure that in, in, uh, in series three. Other, otherwise, it might feel like it's coming out of nowhere. So, you, you know, and, and also it makes for, uh, it's, one of my favorite scenes is is Jack and Jonathan in the club with the the tenderness and the yeah. pain that Jack's going through and the kind of the awful realization that it, 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 you know it's dawning on David that he's you know he's he's starting to slip away. And in terms of really ahead, it was, I was watching them do that scene and and just seeing what they did with it and how amazing they were, which is no surprise because it's Jonathan Price and Jack Loudon, and it gave me an idea for the. Find one of the final scenes of the next season, which I sort of went off and wrote off the back of seeing what they were doing there. And so, a lot of the time, the act, some of the actors, you know, read ahead of the books so they know what's coming, and some of them like to sort of 
wait and see. And, you know, some of them are, are sadly dying in the books. So they don't care what happens in, in future seasons so much. But so we don't, we don't, I, I, it, with regards as to the deaths, they, they all know what's coming because we're very true to what Mick does. So we don't want to kind of mess with that. I think he judges that absolutely perfectly. And my feeling on killing characters is always that if, if, if the audience or the reader isn't bothered, then you left it too long. It should feel mm -hmm. like a shock, and it should upset people. It should be, you should it shouldn't be like, oh yeah, you've probably done enough with them. That you know, um, so we don't tend to surprise them that much. Although we we did surprise Freddie Fox because in the books it's actually slime on teeth that is on the bridge when River runs out after getting the kind of uh, message about you know Catherine's going to die, and um, and that that was actually I'm going to give credit to Graham Yost for that because uh, he was like. I've got a terrible idea. And I was like, what? And he said, spiders <laughs> on the bridge. I was like, no, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. Because Freddie was so great. It was like in the books, he kind of, he's in a coma after the end of deadlines. And then he kind of dies off page really. And we just thought, let's, let's give him a send off. Let's bring him let's back. Let's really kill this guy. Yeah. Go for it. One more time. yeah, let's really, let's well, make, make him be an absolute asshole. And where could you go after that with him? Really? It's like, he's such a prick in this one. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, but Will, I don't know if you were briefed ahead of time. You're actually speaking to the host of the number one Freddie Fox fan podcast because his work <laughs> in this season was so good that our the amount of time we spent talking amazing. about him yeah. versus the actors who will continue on your show, oh, the really? proportion was way off. I honestly feel bad for Jack Loudon. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Freddie is just... Uh, they're all brilliant. But Freddie in this season just and i knew he'd do it i just knew it's like give him this and he will it'll be up there and it was so operatic and but, it, but that's what the character is the that, you know he's not overdoing it the spider is overdoing it freddie is judging it perfectly he's just so funny he's so repulsive in it and <laughs> just he's a joy to work with he's an absolute joy to watch and just what a way to go out but yeah, <laughs> and then there's there's no pleasure sweeter than than killing him on screen. I guess. Um, I, I wanted to ask specifically about um, that <laughs> it's feeling the fact that we... he says the gods are smiling on me today, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, you're gonna die. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's real McBain on the. Simpsons sorry, moment. go ahead. Yeah. No, please. Um, I, I think that one of the things that we love about the show yeah. is how thrillingly like vulnerable everybody feels outside of Jackson Lamb. You know you have this deep bench of characters to draw from where people might show up, they might come, they might go, and you have this brilliant conceit that McHaren gifted you. It's not just that the characters have a backstory, it's that they have a shelf life, that they may not stay in Slough House for very long, whether they get called back up, whether they quit, whether they're fired, or in this case, yeah. whether they die. It also allows you to just sort of mix and match and discover things among scene partners like Shirley and Marcus's entire yeah. journey, basically alone for this entire uh, series of the show. Do you particularly, do you find yourself having a favorite character to write for or a duo that you find yourself even like bending away from McHaren so you can get them isolated so you can create those sparks again? Oh, no. I mean, it's, it's favorites is de definitely not. One of the strengths of the book and of the cast is that I find when I read the books, I'm never like, oh, it's them. Oh, get, get to, get to the, you know, the characters I like. There's no one I kind of want to skip past, but there's definitely, I definitely find and it sort of happens once you start casting for me. And again, it's something I learned from Armando that you, you, you start writing to the actors and to their rhythms. And, and it, so I sort of see myself as a conduit between Nick's amazing work and the actor's interpretation of the character. And it's sort of, it's sort of blending that because, you know, some, we have cast slightly differently from how they are on the page at points, 
And when you get like Marcus and Shirley, for instance, is I think it's a sort of there's an older dynamic in the book in terms of the sort of age difference. So they're more, you know, I think I'm right that it's it's sort of slightly more paternal the relationship in the book, where it's it's much more sibling because of the way we we cast it. But those two, Kenneth Cohen and Amy Fionn Edwards, are just, they're so brilliant at inhabiting those roles and and running on after the you know if you, if you need to like keep going, but if we need like you need thirty seconds at the end, they can just do it and. I mean, Jack can do that as well, and Roz used to do that with Dustin Min, who, who we all miss. But yeah, it's, and that's great when you when you feel like the the actors are so in that zone that they can kind of do anything with it, which is which is always it's always this sort of Gary level where you know, there's that scene in at one where he just goes in and orders a kebab, and I just I was watching it thinking <laughs> he's just ordering a kebab, but it's hypnotic. It's like and it's he, you know he's acting with every cell of his body it's just you're just watching a real it just feels like a real thing to me now when i watch him as lamb i'm like that's that's not gary that's lamb so that's gary he's a chameleon like that since you mentioned gary in his in his chameleonic nature i feel like it's important to ask about something i'm not sure how closely you pay attention to but when this uh was season three premiered of slow horses and you have the scene where jackson lamb goes to the doctor uh gary's body in this role became a source of a lot of internet fascination where legitimate people were like, Oh, this is CGI. Oh. He has, he, he's had, he's, they are, they are making oh. him look a certain way. And I'm thinking Gary Oldman is probably the happiest he's ever been in his life. Cause he's eating kebabs and he can do whatever he wants and he's committed to the bit. So I, I guess couch in this question about him in his underwear on a doctor's table is probably a, a larger question about his commitment specifically to this role and how much he seems to relish playing it. Yeah, well, I mean, he he does. He absolutely loves it, and he gives it, you know, absolutely everything. And I mean, in terms of his physicality, he's definitely put on put on some weight as we've been doing it. But he also he, he's not as big as he's he's not he's bigger on camera because he does postural things where he'll sort of make himself look bigger. And I mean, we, I remember when we did the first Zoom read because it was uh, COVID for series one, and I'd, I'd met him. And, you know, we'd done some work on the scripts. And then on the Zoom read, he's just, he sort of did this thing with his chin where I was like, oh, God, you've, you've inflated your neck. He's And he looked, <laughs> he'd, he'd sort of filled out as a lamb there. But he, yeah, he he loves it. And that the scene where he's washing himself in the sink, unfortunately, we had to do that twice because something about the film was corrupted. So we had, had to do it again. He loved it. He was just walking around, doing it really, I mean, he gets the joke. He loves being the character. It's it's not CGI. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but he's also, it's, it's, you, you know, he is, he's properly transformative that, you know, I do, he, I, I was going to say he's a magician, but that implies there's no work that it's, that he puts in a tremendous amount of work and just, he knows the lines so inside out that it, it, it he's not even, well, he is thinking about the performance. I'm tying myself in knots here. Uh, but what I want to say is he's, he, he just becomes another person to the point where I can, like if I, I caught him on Tinker Taylor couple of months ago and genuinely was like that's not the same guy that's a that's a yeah. different man because the, the stillness and the physique and then yeah everything about the voice he just he does that but saskia as well i mean you know i i, I meet saskia outside of the set and i'm like i have to double take i'm like because again it's not just that they make her look older she holds her body in a different way she she's another one way or she just she just loves catherine and she's put so much thought and detail into what Catherine's doing, which I love because my line on Catherine is, is always, yeah, everyone else in the room can overlook her and see past her, but the audience don't. 
that you know she's she's in those scenes and people are ignoring her but you know you can see what she's doing and what she's thinking and you know how important she is I wanted to ask you uh, about the character of London on the show, specifically this season, because there's some really mm. fun meet me at the Barbican Bridge. You know, this you have to get to this tube. You have to do this. You know, Catherine at the end of the series has got a 30 mile mm. walk back to London. I'm going to ask you a question that I have asked Michael Mann about Los Angeles, which is, do you ever cheat? Do you ever cheat the London geography about, oh, he could or couldn't get there this fast or this isn't actually close to where Slough House would be because I've tried to, when I've been in London, do the sort of slow horses tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 a lot of fun to walk by Regent's Park and, and think about <laughs> everything that happens. Oh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, there's the, the yeah, we, we do cheat. And, and specifically, you'll have to remind me, what how far does, how far does Catherine say she's walking? Is it 20? She's walking 20 miles at the end of the season. Yeah. Specifically that, I can tell you that because I remember because I think I'd put 20 miles and then the people who work out, you know, where the locations are and the timings of everything, they were like, actually, where we've got the kidnap house, it would be 12 miles or 15 or something. And so I changed it to fit the reality of where we'd imagine the house was. And then, then it was, I'm pretty sure it was Gary was like, 20 miles is funnier. And it, it it's funnier to say it's, <laughs> It's further ahead of walk. It's just, it's just better. And I was like, yeah, forget the reality. It's good. <laughs> Stick with 20 miles. So we do kind of move it around a bit. But the Slough House, it, Slough House is a real exterior location. It's the location that Mick Heron used to walk past when he went to work before he was, you know, before he'd given up his, his day job and he was, you know, just writing in the evenings. And so we're using the actual building that Mick, that inspired Mick, which I absolutely love. We use a lot of the, streets around there so we try and stick to the sort of slough house geography of it but then when it comes to it we just want whatever is interesting and unusual that hasn't seen before doesn't see the obvious location and our brilliant director saw metstein he, he's got a background in architecture he did an architecture degree and so he he, he loves building so he's, he's got a great eye for that and you know we have fantastic locations manager ian pollington who finds all these places that you know, you don't normally see on camera and a lot of people who live in London do remark on that as well, that, oh, it's good to see different sides of the city on screen. Um, in the same way that I was just asking about London, I was curious about the world in which, the way in which Slow Horses is sort of set of the world rather than in the world. So there's mm -hmm. there are certain things that sort of uh, echo our contemporary moment and current events, but it has its own sort of version of those events. And I wonder whether or not you're you're kind of, it's a relief to have that be the scenario rather than trying to keep up with the third prime minister of the year kind of uh, pace yeah. with which current events go. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for reminding me that my country is in free fall. But yes. <laughs> Look who you're talking it takes to. Takes one to no one. <laughs> yeah, we're all we there. have a special relationship, <laughs> if, if, as you recall. And Mick is very prescient. You know, he kind of one line that predicts Brexit in, in the first book, uh, which. I marvel at, and he, as books went on, he sort of brought in more, he's, he's been commenting on contemporary events more and more, really. And he, I mean, he does have, he has the, uh, the actual prime minister in certain books, and it'll always be a version of the sort of prime minister that he was writing at the time. And he does, there's an absolutely amazing, I think it's in book, I think it's book eight, I think it's Bad Actors, where he has a pastiche of um, a Boris Johnson speech, basically, which is just absolutely the best satirical attack on 
Boris Johnson's uh, speechifying that, that I've ever read and that Mick said took him as long to write as it did to type because he just sort of came out of him. <laughs> so he's, he's sort of is, he's definitely, it's not satire quite, but it's he, he's, he's drawing on and he's commenting on and he's expressing his frustration and his rage through his fiction and that we we kind of I, I, it's hard in drama I, th- I think it would be very hard for us to ever show the prime minister because mm-hmm. like in the you could do it in the books because you don't see the book i think once you put them on screen and you go oh that isn't actually the prime minister it, it just it, it could slightly it, i think for, for our show it would be tricky to suddenly start doing that but you definitely feel their influence and certainly sam west who plays peter judd who's absolutely amazing he He's like an amalgam of all the the shittiest politicians <laughs> in Britain. That so you can kind of it doesn't have to be a direct comparison. But you you kind of you hint at it and you sum it up and you, you we reflect it. I think one of the um, just as a fan of the show, one of the real creative pleasures you and your team must get to enjoy is the fact that season to season you get to play in a different sandbox and you were alluding before yeah. uh, will about how this season there was a remarkably high body count and suddenly you have a legitimately heavy action set piece that spans almost two episodes mm-hmm. looking forward to the next season which i know you're working on and and i know nothing's official but we're hoping for many more seasons mm-hmm. what other p- types of storytelling are you looking forward to doing and seeing what seeing just how seaworthy this vessel you've constructed is yeah, well, it's it's absolutely that you know it's it's wonderful to have a returning series, but where each series, because of the books, feels different and just like on a really simple level, it's like Mick will you know like Slow Horses, that was in the winter, Deadlines was in the summer, and that you know it's just you just you, you get the rain, then you get the sweltering heat, you just so straight away you've got a different visual look. Everyone's in different clothes, the lighting's different, everything you know everything can kind of the look and the feel of it can shift. And then he, it's always, obviously, obviously it's a different plot, but within that plot, it's not just new villains, it's new slow horses, it's it's new everything. So he, as you say, he's got the body count. That means he's continually refreshing the kind of the cast for us and giving us these, you know, fantastic kind of um, casting opportunities. And also just the way, uh, the way he works, which is similar to the way Amanda used to work, at, you know, we'd start a season and he'd be like, Right, we're not doing that again. We've done that. What and who? What pairings of characters haven't we have? What's interesting? Like they've been together. Let's split them up. Let's put them together. Let's see what that generates. And Mick, um, would, he would say this himself. I'm, you know, I'm not speaking for him. It's it's his process that he's talked about. He will think right. Okay, what what are the interesting pairings? Where are the characters at? What do I want to do with the characters? And then he'll sort of find a plot to fit where the characters are. So yeah, you look ahead. You know, like when I was, you know, I I read you know all the books. You know, all, all the books that were available, you know, once I was committed to write a script for this, and you do think, oh my God, if we get to season three, we get, you know, yeah. I'll get to do the shootout. That was the real thing. You know, killing men, not that I wanted to kill men, but as a moment, think, oh my God, that's going to be fantastic. There's things in book four that, you know, the opening, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe he's done that. Or oh, how are we going to work, make that work brilliant on the page? How would we do that? Because that's, that's tricky because there's a, You'll know what I'm talking about when you when you finally get to see it, but it, it, there's, there's a trick he does that you could do in the book, but you, it's hard to do visually. And the same with book five, actually. He's got a fantastic opening in that that you, you just couldn't do, so we have to sort of rethink that. So I'm, I'm continually thinking, and cast-wise, again, uh, you know, I'm really, I'm happy to say there's two, there's two characters in series four where, you know, as I was reading the books, I was thinking, oh, I want, oh, that would be amazing to get them and them, and, and we got them. <laughs> it's, that's, 
that's really exciting to sort of from years ago to be thinking, oh, forgot to do that. I'd love to do it with them. And then to be to have done it is pretty amazing. Well, I know that um, in other interviews, Gary has said that he'd like to play this role indefinitely. We'd like to, now that we have the opportunity to speak to you, can you commit to doing this indefinitely as well? Because I feel like <laughs> considering our countries are in free fall, considering everything is so uncertain, considering TV shows that we used to count on every year, take one, two, three years off, death taxes yeah. and slow horses every fall is really helping us right <laughs> it now. It is so really can, reliable. Can, can you make this promise to us? It's, it'll go on as long as, as long as Apple wants it, as long as Gary Gary wants to do it. Like you say, he said he, he's happy to, for it to be his last. I mean, it's nuts just to even say that, that. It's nuts to think of him not acting and it's nuts to think that this would be the last, the thing he'd go out on. It's absolutely incredible. But he, uh, yeah. If, if well, Gary's so you're it, responsible now. That means you have to keep writing. Otherwise he stops acting. So this is really, a, this is a you problem, not an us problem. <laughs> it's either you or Christopher Nolan's going to do a Harry Truman movie. It's got to be one or the other. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Will, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thank you so much for making the show the way you do. It's just a, a source of really constant joy for Andy and I. Yeah, and please come back and talk to us in future seasons. Time. It's, uh, that's amazing to hear. And, uh, you know, we it's a really, you know, incredibly rewarding show to do. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've, wor I've worked on some things I'm very proud of. But I, I'm so proud of Slow Horses and keenly aware that, you know, I probably will never work on something as good as this again with a cast and a crew as amazing as this because ev everyone the amazing thing about it is that everybody is making the same show which i know sounds obvious but sometimes yeah it's not the case and it's like everybody knows what it is loves it contributes wants the best for the show and it's just to feel that that team is there is just just an incredible thing that i, I just don't want to ever have to let go of because it's it's just amazing having that and just with the cast was so in tune with the characters have such great thoughts and uh, such a delight it's just yeah fantastic thanks so much for joining us thank you well happy oh, holidays no to you and your family thank you so much guys thank you <laughs>